Amen. Thankful for uh, the touch of God's Spirit in our lives. I'm thankful we don't do this thing on our own. Um, I don't want to talk a lot. A pastor had mentioned it this morning, but I do want to make mention of something I do think is important concerning the events of, of the big name preacher who's now you know, dead but in scandal. And, and I think it's something that's important. It's a, it's a minute detail, but a really important that we understand. His title was apologist. You're going to struggle to find that in the scripture. God gave some apostles prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I don't see apologists in that list. And the reason I bring that up is because pastor said something a couple weeks ago that is so important. God orders things. And when we get outside of God's order, we get into doing things man's way. And I love what uh, the apostle Paul said. I, I did not come to you with excellency of man's speech or wisdom but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I don't want to get caught up. I think it, the reason I bring that up is we want to do it the way God says to do it. We're not called to go out and defend the gospel against the attack of the world. We're called to make disciples of men and to proclaim the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. And if we get off onto tangents, and we see this as kind of the this is kind of the dividing line of all denomination. We get off onto tangents, and then those tangents become what we are known by. Those things become the, the markers that separate us from everybody else. But I want to remind you, that's not what God's... God's not called us to separate from the church. God's not called us to separate from fellowship. He's called us to separate from the world, <laughs> not from each other. And so we're not looking for reasons to divide amongst ourselves. We're looking for reasons to unite in the Lord. Everybody say amen. amen. That's not what I'm preaching tonight, but I think it's important. Um, something I thought about, about that, this whole situation that's arisen. It's sad. But the point is, the scripture says, know those that labor among you. And I'm thankful that we are working in this thing together. Nobody in this place is better than anybody else. We're all laboring to try to grow in Christ and to see Christ formed in each of us. And I'm thankful for that. Amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1. I want to continue in this 11th chapter of Hebrews, and I, and I feel the Lord leading me as, we, as I've come to the end of this chapter tonight, just continuing in this thought because I'm seeing some things still God's working in me. So I'm going to try to continue this thought for a minute. I want to pick up on this verse uh, again here tonight. Uh, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Lord, we ask you, God, that you would anoint me to bring your word. God, I am not a perfect man. I am not the oracle. But God, we just pray that you would use this vessel, that you would deliver what you have laid so heavily upon my heart, that I'd be able to deliver it to, to our brothers and sisters and that we can grow by it. Jesus, I believe this is why you give us your word. And so we pray that your name be exalted through what we do here tonight, and we're going to give you all the glory, and everybody say amen. Amen. So tonight, um, I, I talked two, two sermons ago about the blindness of faith, and then last time I talked about the sacrifice of faith, and tonight I want to talk to you about the works of faith. The works of of faith. I really think it's a concept that is frowned upon in Christianity today. 
You're not going to turn on Christian television or Christian radio and hear anybody really preaching about the works. Anybody ever heard the term works gospel? And it's never looked upon in a, in a good light. It's always looked upon in a negative thing. But I, I think that there has been this radical push among secular Christianity to separate how we live from our faith. There's this real push to separate that, that how you live really has nothing to do with your faith. But I, as this body believes, and I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight, literally to the young people, but all the rest of you are part of the, the, you know, the rhetorical choir here. I want to reiterate that we believe that your works, how you live, has everything to do with your faith. Everything to do with your faith. I think we can see clearly in Hebrews 11 that faith and works are inseparable sisters. They are conjoined twins, if you will. You cannot have one without the other. Or better yet, I will show you what you believe by how you live. Does that make sense? Everybody wants to talk about faith and they want to separate it from the works of how we live our lives. But I will show you what you believe if I watch how you live. We'll show you what you believe about a lot of things. We could go into a lot of examples, but I'll leave that there for the sake of time tonight. I want to look just one chapter or one a couple of pages for most of you to James chapter 2, the next book of the, of the Bible. And I want to read a couple of scriptures that are so applicable. James chapter 2, verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, everybody say dead. It does not exist. It ceases to be. It is not alive. How could we say that any different way? You know that there's a lot of people who really don't like the book of James? I'm being serious. There's a lot of preachers who do not like the book of James because James hits some stuff square in the face. And they think that James and Paul to be opposite ends of the spectrum, but this is not true. It is clearly within the Pauline epistles too. But faith without works is dead. Now, I want to read down through a few verses and I want you to pick up some stuff here. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So James's response is, you show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Pastor likes to quote this, and he says often that, well, you believe God is one, okay, good, you're right up to the level of a devil. Belief is not the gold standard which identifies Christian faith. Uh, this is so clear. This scripture is not taken out of context. I am doing no harm to this chapter. Belief is not the standard of evidence for your Christian faith. It is in conjunction that our faith and our works must align. And when we back our faith with our works, then God is pleased. It is evident what we believe. Let's continue to read. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now listen, was not Abraham? You're going to see a few examples. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And that by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let me pause there for a minute. We're getting into the same, a couple of the same examples that we just read in Hebrews 11. So how many would agree this chapter ties together really well? Now, everybody wants to talk about believe. If you want to be saved, you've got to believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, and confess with your mouth, and thou shalt be saved. Romans, right? And we all want to talk about that. But James talks about the works and the faith being coupled, and he calls that belief. That's what he identifies as belief. Do you not know that Abraham, when he worked this work, that God counted it uh, uh, to him as righteousness? And then he goes on to repeat it and to understand that belief is what that is identified at. So if you want to talk about faith, faith is that noun, but belief is the action of faith, and you cannot have action without works. Everybody should have said amen right there. There is no verb. Everybody remember school and you had to do verbs and nouns? There is no verb that is not moving. That's why we have the ings on the end. It is a, as an action word. And so you cannot believe unless there is action. You cannot have belief without works. Belief is the mixing of faith and works. Faith without works is dead. It doesn't even constitute belief. You can't say you're a believer if you're not acting like one. This just goes on and on and on. Let's look, continue to read to the end of this chapter. Then see then that a man is justified by works. And let that hit on some deaf ears for a minute. And not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I don't think we could be any more clear than that chapter. I don't think James could be any more clear than, than to, to, to be trying to reinstitute in our hearts that we need to understand that our works are attached directly to our faith. And how we live identifies whether we really believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're going to change how you live to follow after him. That's what he's saying. It's so clear. You cannot, let me be clear about something, and this is where the, the sticking point is. You cannot earn your salvation through works. You can't do enough good works to get salvation. Salvation is given freely, but it's not acquired freely. You can't earn your salvation by works, but you certainly can lose your salvation by your works. And in order to keep your salvation, you're going to have to work at it. In fact, the scripture says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there is always a work involved. And anybody who is telling you, and I know that here, unless you're listening somewhere else, you wouldn't be hearing this, but anybody that might try to tell you that your faith and your works 
are not synonymous and they do not go together is lying to you. It is a lie from the pit of hell. And they're, they're teaching you a false and dead doctrine. It's a gospel of death. It's not the gospel of life. I am thankful that Jesus saves us to the uttermost. And he changes the works of our life. How many are thankful you're not bound in the sin you were once bound in? How many are thankful he didn't just set you free and leave you bound? How would that work? But he set you free to a newness of life. I I know I'm covering something that we all understand. But in order for us to, to parse this last section of Hebrews 11, we have to understand that works and faith go together. We saw that faith requires sacrifice. We see that faith requires us to walk without seeing sometimes. But we have to understand that there's a lot of work that goes into faith. And you got to understand that tomorrow when you wake up, you may not feel like you're full of faith. But you're going to have to work it out and you're going to have to walk in the light as he is in the light. Whether you feel like you're in the light or not. If Satan's beating you up, you still got to get up and walk in the light. You're going to have to work it out tomorrow. Anybody like working out? There's some weird people that do. I'm not one of them. It hurts. It takes discipline. It takes sacrifice. And, And the thing about salvation is so does it. It's a workout. It's a daily walk. It's a discipline of our life. And if we're going to be called disciples of Jesus Christ, then we're going to have to take that root word, disciple, which means disciplined one. You cannot follow Jesus without discipline. And discipline's work. Discipline is work. I want to read to you a couple of scriptures quickly. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. This, again, you just got to go one, one more book. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 down to verse 17. But as he who has called you is holy, you also should be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, be ye holy as I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Why do people believe that God isn't going to judge us by our works? James thinks he is. Peter thinks he is. The God who without partiality. You know what that says? That God's judging Christians and sinners also. Both. He judges without partiality all men. I don't care what what jersey you're wearing or the fish on your car or the cross around your neck. That doesn't get you exclusion from the judgment of the works of your life. In fact, Peter says, because we know this, because we know that God is judging every man according to his works, we ought to walk on this earth while we're here in fear. We should say, you know what, I want to make sure I'm pleasing God. I want to make sure how I'm living is coming up to the standard that he expects me to walk in. Amen. That's good preaching. Let's look at Romans chapter 2. Peter did some good preaching there. James did some good preaching there. But Paul, Paul is all about grace. He doesn't believe in works, right? He doesn't believe you have to to work anything out. Not Paul. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. But in accordance with the hardness of your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and Uh, and uh, revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his works, according to his deeds. Uh-oh, Paul, he's the big grace guy. We, we love to quote Paul about grace, but we don't love to quote Paul uh, about Romans chapter 2. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in the doing good. What is that? Work? <laughs> That's work. In doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Paul also believes that faith and works are conjoined. Understanding that how you live identifies what your faith is. I, I am so I, I so believe this. I so believe that that we we are oftentimes and I've shared this. I know I have before, but it, is, it was just a, one of those things you remember in life a lot. I remember I was talking to a. Uh, a woman one time, her son, I had coached him and we're trying to help just, he's doing a lot of stupid stuff. And, and she said, <laughs> she said to me, well, now they weren't very good church people. In fact, not very good church people at all, but she was really encouraged and hoping that her son, you know, would just somehow make it. But that she said that, you know, the thing about the Holy Spirit is it comes along and it makes us do what we don't want to do. So we really don't want to live for the Lord, but then the Holy Spirit comes along and he makes us do that. No, it's absolutely the 100% opposite. You want to live for the Lord? That's the desire of your heart. Then the Spirit of God comes along and equips you to be able to do that. That's how that works. Got it totally opposite. We're waiting for God to come along and convince us about doing something that we really don't want to do. Chris was talking to me last night about some, something he was following and, and uh, all these guys are going on there and confessing constantly about the pornography problems they have and, well, you know, I just pray, help me today, I just really, and guys are, oh, I know, it's the daily struggle. And our response, which is, mine's the same, but his, my response is, no, stop doing it. Stop. That's, it's that simple. And we don't believe that. We feel like that sin is something we cannot stop doing. But sin is a transgression against obedience to God. It's choosing not to obey God. And you think God's going to come along and make you obey Him when you don't want to? Absolutely not. So it is work. It's work. The Apostle Paul says, and I buffet myself. Beat myself up in order that I can, while I preach this gospel, not become a castaway from the faith. It's a work. You living for Jesus is work and it's everyday work. How many think that carrying a cross is work? When Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to carry a cross. How many think denying yourself is work? And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself. There is no way you can follow Jesus without works. Now, I know a lot of people, and I will mention this, and I'm trying to hurry and get on. Although, today's our fast day, and so I don't have anywhere to be till 8 o'clock. <laughs> I'm just saying. Now, 8 o'clock, I might run off the, if I'm not done, I'll just run out the back door. 
there, there is also the other side of this, though, which is where people begin to get into works justification in that they believe that somehow by doing specific works that they're gaining greater favor with God. But I'm going to tell you what God's works are. It's humility. It's submission. It's not about what you wear, which is what I grew up in. What dad grew up in. It's not about women wearing dresses and not wearing makeup and not cutting their hair and the men lusting after everybody but just don't act on it. No, 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 no. Men, if you got a problem with a woman's toes, you got some problems. There's just something wrong with you. And so we can also understand that while we are working toward Jesus, we are trying to do the works of righteousness. We are submitting ourselves under his authority. That is a work. We are not justified by some self-righteous thing where we look around and suppose ourselves to be better than other people because we're doing things they're not. That is also the dangerous slope. And this is why a lot of people are afraid of a works gospel. That's why they're afraid of it. Because they say, well, yeah, it's just all legalism. And, and so we're judging. I, listen, I'm not going to judge you by your works. I'm not. But God is. <laughs> yeah, you were really happy with me for a second. But I'm not judging you. It's not my job. But God is going to judge you. And really what the judgment comes down to is the heart condition. It's not about what you're doing. It's about the heart with which you're doing it. And so I do believe that God has a different standard for me after 25 years now of ministry than somebody who just walks in, sits the rear end down on a pew and just starts serving the Lord. He's got a different level for me to walk in. He expects more from me. Everybody okay with that? To whom much is given, much is required. So we have a standard to come up to. We could have read the whole of Romans 2. But the point here is that God is going to judge us based upon our works. So as we look at this last portion of Hebrews chapter 11, I want to notice that this is exactly what is being highlighted here by the Apostle. And I don't know, I mean, maybe you could say, well, I don't like the way you segmented it. Well, it's the way I saw it this time when I read through it. I just see this last section here uh, of Scripture highlighting the, the effort, the labor, the passion with which these people lived their lives in order to make it into the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. So I want to I read these and I want to make note of them. I got to get back over there. Hebrews chapter 11. We got it up there. We're going to be starting in verse 30. Hebrews 11 and verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. The Israelites worked for seven days following God's direction and their faith resulted in the falling of the walls of Jericho. They didn't just walk up and say, faith makes those walls fall. They believed the word of God, which meant when he said to do this, what did they, they did it. They worked it. When God spoke, they acted. That's the works that are being highlighted here. And the result of their belief their action mixed with their faith was that they did something that nobody thought would have any impact and yet God honored their faith 
and brought those walls down. Verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. The work of Rahab was this, that she hid two Israeli spies that had gone into, and you all probably know, but let's refresh it, that had gone into to spy out the land and to see if they were able to conquer. And, and they were going to be in, in Jericho, in fact, and they were going to be uh, taken captive and be killed. But they ran into her house. Now, I don't know to what extent she was a harlot. I don't know. I, she was an innkeeper. Now, that might have been, you know, might, maybe that was akin to that. But we know she had a place where people would, would stay. And the result of that, they came into her and, and Rahab's great work was that she lied. She lied to them when they came and said, do you have spies in your house? And she said, no. <laughs> do you know where they're at? No. Because she was, she was trying to grab a hold. She believed in what they believed. She believed in what they were doing enough. Something gripped her that caused her to act in a way she had never acted before. And she hid them. Brought them out safely. Works were involved. Look at verse 32. No, that wasn't a permission to lie. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel the prophet. I want to quickly touch these. Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, all of them are warriors. All of them are valiant men. All of them are fighters, and every last one of them with glaring imperfections. In fact, I would probably, in my book, not put them in there. Because I would have looked at what they had done, and there were some bad things they had done. But God is looking at something a bit different than what we are. So look quickly, Gideon, he showed the work or the function of faith when though he was extremely afraid, he responded to God and went out and fought tens of thousands of men with 300 men. He, he didn't have confidence in himself. He didn't believe himself to be a leader of men. He felt like he was the least of his father's household. He was not qualified to do this. But he, he said, Lord, if this is what you want from me, if this is what you desire, then I'm going to go out and I'm going to do it in his fear. Look at Barak. Barak fought for righteousness even though he was afraid to go up and fight alone and hid behind the skirt of a woman, Deborah. That's what Barak did. Deborah, the prophetess, told him, go up and God's going to give you the victory. And he said, I'm not going up by myself. I'll only go if you go with me. That doesn't seem very manly to me. And yet, his response, even though he had some, he had some security, insecurity problems, he, he, was, he was struggling to have confidence, but yet he still responded to what God had instructed him to do. And the result of that was that he defeated the enemies of Israel. Samson. We all know Samson had failed miserably. 
We know that God had gifted Samson. We know that he had special anointing on his life, special ability. And God had raised him up in order to, to fight against the enemies of Israel. This is what God had done. And God had given him commands and God had given him promises. And Samson, he, he sold all of those away for sensual pleasure. And now with his eyes burned out. As a result of his sin, because sin has consequences. Samson worked to grow in strength. As he plowed like a mule. As he ground the meal like a mule around a stone. And he grew and he worked out. He literally was working out to gain the strength back. He was allowing the hair to grow again because that was what God had told him to do. And, and the result of Samson's work was that he was able to avenge his disobedience with obedience. And to destroy all the leaders of the Philistines. Jephthah, born an illegitimate child, was stripped of his birthright. He was shunned. He was ostracized, kicked out of his family residence. And he was running around with a bunch of, a bunch of hooligans. And they called him and said, we need somebody to come and we need somebody to fight and lead the fight for Israel. And Jephthah was brave. And he was bold. And audacious, and he defeated those who attacked Israel. He made some terrible, terrible mistakes. In fact, he's the one who said, Lord, if you'll give me the victory, then I'll, I will sacrifice the first thing that walks down my driveway. That's, that's what he said. Remember, his daughter walked down the driveway. He made some really poor decisions, but he also had this faith that caused him to respond to the word of God. I'm going somewhere here tonight. David, we know of all of David's indiscretions. But talk about the work of faith in his life. For 15 years, he ran and hid. He hid in caves, in the wilderness. His family is being assaulted. All of his friends are being killed and, and they're all being forced to flee and to run into hiding too. And for 15 years, he is putting to work his faith. And he touches not the anointed of God, even though he's the rightful king. He doesn't touch Saul because he believes in the word of God and he is working out his faith in the wilderness. And he is, we love to sing his psalms, but we don't even understand the place that David is coming from most of the time in these psalms. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they are safe. That's not written from a place of safety. That's written from a place of him fleeing and trying to find a refuge. I think what we see here is a beautiful picture of men who had some imperfections. But they worked to make them right. I think this is important. I want all you adults to look at me and, and listen closely. I want you, all you kids, I want you to listen. God's not afraid of your fear. God's not afraid of your insecurities. God's not afraid of your weaknesses. God's not afraid of your failures. 
but you're going to have to work to overcome them. You're going to have to work to surrender. I'm not saying that God's okay with us living ungodly. I don't believe that at all. I'm not justifying that we, we go out and live however we want. I've said the opposite of that already tonight. But I want you to know that God's not afraid. People say that, that God went, you know, he can't look at sin. But when Adam sinned, God went down in the garden looking for him. You think God didn't know what he had done? God's not afraid of your sin. But God's going to give you an opportunity to work through it. And I think that's really the picture that we see in in all of these these men that were just listed is that there was some imperfection there, but they were working through it. And what we see very clearly from from David, especially in all the Psalms, we know this. We don't have as much information about the others, but what we do know from David, he's a man after God's heart because when when he has messed his life up, he comes with a repentant heart, and he says, God, make me clean. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew an upright spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. All of that is from that, that place of, Lord, I'm, I'm working back towards you. I, I love that scripture. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy, when I fall, for I shall arise. God's not looking for perfection. And and even if, I don't know who I'm speaking to right now, but even if in your service to the Lord, maybe at some point that that you, even currently, you're struggling, maybe you've seen some moral failure or some some issue in your life, I don't know what's going on. But I want to tell you this, don't run from God. Don't run from God. God can deal with your issues. God's got a solution for you. Your sin is disobedience and it is driving you away from God. But you can avenge that disobedience with obedience, which is to come to God. That's it. God's not afraid of where you've been. Your failure doesn't disqualify you from faith. But your lack of works does. Make it right. The scripture says, God will in no way reject a humble and a contrite spirit. That takes work. Because when we've been wrong is when we so often get stiff-necked. And we get rigid and we refuse to hear the word of God. And we don't, want to, we don't want to do what God has instructed us to do. And that's the hard part. But the work of righteousness in our life is, Lord, I'm going to come and I'm going to break myself before you. I'm going to bend myself and make myself supple in your hands. I'm going to put myself on that will and say, Lord, remake me, reshape me, fix me. I'm marred. I've got some issues. And I just want to tell you that tonight. We talk a lot about living right, and I believe in living right, but I don't want you to run from God if you've made a mistake. I don't want you to feel like that God is is afraid of where you've been, or God can't look upon you, or or that God is disqualifying you from faith. Come running to God. Everybody say amen. Amen. Verse 33. So now we're going to see a summation of the whole chapter, but I think even specifically again, of the works involved. Now listen. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, 
obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. Yet they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves. Sounds like a lot of work. Sounds like a lot of work. I don't know what we're facing. I don't know what this country is facing. I don't know what Echoes of Calvary is facing. But I'm going to tell you what, if we're going to serve Jesus, it's going to be work. We need to be ready to roll up our sleeves and get to work. I remember when I was first starting working with dad. I'm going to tattle on myself. Some days I was ready to go out there and really get it. Just Go get it. And other days, if I was kind of hoping that we would have a short day, my attitude was not quite as good if I found out that we were not going to have a short day. And I remember sometimes that I would kind of be, you know, in the, in the winter especially, it's kind of muddy out there, and I remember I would be tiptoeing around kind of the puddles and, you know, trying to stay clean. And Dad, I remember several times saying to me, you're just going to have to get dirty. Because you're just going to have to get to work. You can't accomplish something being afraid of getting dirty. There's just a lot of rolling up our sleeves when it comes to serving Jesus. Just roll up your sleeves. Be a man. Be a woman. Be what God's called you to be. Get to work. There's a lot of work in front of us. And if we're prepared to work, if our mindset is ready to work... We're not going to have any problems. But if we get in this thing and we think we're not going to have to work and then it starts getting tough, you know what we're going to do? Quit. We're going to quit. That's what a lot of people are doing right now in their faith. And this is why, why tribulation and trial really only perfects the church. Because it, it reveals those who really want to serve the Lord and live for the Lord and those who are just along for the ride. And so I want to encourage you, get to work. Put the work in right now. I've been encouraging my kids. I've been telling them frequently over the last couple of months. I just really felt it. Not, I mean, it's true all the time, but I've really felt it. I keep reminding them, start sowing seeds right now. You know, sowing seeds is work. Start sowing seeds right now of the harvest that you want to see in five years. So you, you want to see this happening in your life. You're looking ahead five years ahead. You better be planting those things right now of godliness. I'm not talking about finances. I'm not talking about finances with them when I'm talking to them. I'm talking about godliness. I'm talking about you want to have a, a good family and you want to have good kids and you want, to, you want to see yourself growing in the Lord, then you need to be putting in the work right now. That doesn't magically happen. It doesn't just appear. We're going to labor and we're going to work at it. Now, now I, I have to, I'm working toward closing, but I'm going to tell you what. Verse 39 and 40 just blew my mind. Literally. 
I read this for the first time, it triggered something that I had never really paid attention to before. I didn't see it this way. I've read this chapter, I can't tell you how many times. But look at verse 39. And all of these, the whole chapter now, and not just the names that we know, but all those people that we just read about that went through all this tribulation and trial and persecution and trouble, and all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Word of faith says, if you have enough faith, you get the promise. And all of these, all of these, every one of these, had a good report of faith. And yet, they did not receive the promise. They got some promises. There were some things that God had promised that He would do that they were able to see. Some of them walked into the promised land. Some of them saw victories that God had, God had told them he would give them. But what promise is he talking about here? What's the promise that they were looking for that they didn't receive? Jesus. They obtained a good report based upon their faithfulness and the kind of faith that caused work in their life, a labor and a sweat and a fight and a suffering, that though they, they received this good report, there was no promise given to them. But they were willing to labor anyway. They were willing to fight anyway. They were willing to work the works of faith without ever seeing the promise, just looking forward to the promise coming, just looking forward. And the scripture says, and they look longing to be in our day. They look forward. They're, they're longing to see what we can see so clearly. Well, that's pretty powerful. And then you get to verse 40. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Huh? All of that faith, all of that work. Reminds me of the writer who says, um, you have not suffered unto blood. Whom the world was not worthy of all of this faith and this faith, if we don't step up to the mark, then it's lacking, it's vain. That's literally what the end of this chapter is saying. Of everything this writer just told us, if we don't fulfill the promise that God had given, then everything they do was in vanity. Because the promise was about Jesus coming and building a church. A lot of people don't believe in the church anymore. Don't believe in the local body. It just, it just hurts me. So much faith in their lives. And yet somehow they're dependent upon me. All that they went through and we struggle over the little things that we fight over and bicker over and worry about and we, we struggle to shut off a filthy TV program. 
We struggle to separate. We struggle over whether we should be drunk. That's what our churches are dealing with now. Trying to figure out whether homosexuality is wrong or right. And these people, all that we just read, all that they went through, and oh, by the way, I just want to tell you that that God said there was something better and they weren't going to be perfect without us. It just blew my mind. That there's something left to us that we have to pick up. There's something left for us that we've got to do. We suffer nothing in America. I know there's Christians around the world that are suffering, but we don't. I think this is why Jude said we've got to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. They delivered it to us. They they put it on our doorstep. You want to know what faith is about? Faith is about walking when you can't see. Faith is about sacrifice. Faith is about work. That's what faith's about. And they dropped it off on our doorstep and they said, here, we did all this for you so that you can walk in promise that we couldn't get into. Anybody feel a little guilty right now? So that you could walk in some promise that we couldn't even ever see, we could never touch. No wonder they're all listed in this chapter. Because of that kind of, that kind of sacrifice and that kind of diligence and that kind of concern. Now let me say this, and I'm getting ready to close. But there should be no break between Hebrews 12.1 and Hebrews 11.40. It should be Hebrews 11.41. Probably should just be all the way through the next chapter in the same, because it's not a break in thought. Right? So everything I just said, God said there's something better. All of that was good. All that faith was good. But there's a promise that is going to be perfected in the church age. And without the church age happening, without the body of Christ happening, without Jesus' manifestation of of God in the flesh, without that evidence and without the church growing, all of that would be nothing. It would be worthless. It would be imperfect. But, Hebrews 12.1, Wherefore, Seeing that we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside the weight. I want you to move six inches away from the person next to you, quickly. And I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you need to lose some weight. (laughs) I gave you warning. You need to lose some weight. How many like being told you need to lose some weight? (laughs) Believe me, you don't like it anymore in the spirit. We don't like it any more in the spirit than we do in the flesh. None. We don't want a pastor. We don't want a minister, a preacher, an apostle, prophet, evangelist. We don't want them getting up and saying you need to lose weight. We want people coming along bringing us cupcakes. That's what we want. 
We want somebody coming along, telling us what we want to hear, telling us that our excess spiritual obesity is okay, telling us that we're going to be fine. We don't need to worry about our spiritual condition. That's what we want. But the word of, come, word of God comes along and says, you are fat spiritually. You should have put spiritually on the end about losing weight. I meant to add that, but I didn't. Wherefore, seeing that we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, you need to lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily besets us. And what do you need to do? You need to run the race with patience that is set before you. That's a lot of work. I happened to flip on the, the television yesterday and Rodney and I watched this thing, the most insane thing I've ever seen. These guys, well, there was a couple of girls in the mix, I don't know, maybe like 20 of them, did this race in Iceland in the middle of the winter and they ran 250 kilometers over seven days in sub-zero conditions. That's insane. And they took vacation to do that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm probably not going to take vacation to go run consecutive marathons. That's what we were doing every day. 26 miles every day. Running the race that is set before us with patience. It's about endurance. It's a marathon. And it's going to take some work. And you're going to have to condition yourself. And I noticed that there wasn't any of those guys that were running marathons day after day after day that had a shred of fat on them. It was pretty easy to see because you can't do it. We need to condition ourselves, church. Seeing that we're encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses, look at Hebrews 11 is what the writer's saying. Just look back at what I just said and seeing that you've got such a great... Uh, evidence of what faith looks like, then what we need to do is to start laying aside some weight. We need to get rid of some stuff. You've got to lose something to gain something. I don't want to lose the promises that were given to the church. I'm so, I love, I mean, what pastor's been preaching just, in, obviously we appreciate it, but we are set as a sign. That's who we are. But if we're not operating in faith, we lose the promise. And the generation around us loses the promise because they don't know where God's at. They don't even know where to look. How do you know where God is when the church looks exactly like the world? When we're doing the same things and saying the same things. Well, you'll know where he's at because of the, the miracles. But I'm going to tell you, Jannies and Jambres matched every miracle that Moses did. Lying signs and wonders. The evidence of our life is the work of who we are. The conduct of our character. Needs to separate us and differentiate us from the world. That's what we're called to. We need to trim up some things spiritually. We need to trim up some things. I think God wants to do a great work in us. How many believe that's true? I know it's offensive. I know we don't like being told that. And I make no accusation. I, the Lord's been dealing with me in this area. I've just been, I'm just saying, Lord, what do you want me to lose right now? I don't care what it is. What do you want me to lose? I'll let it go. 
I'll get rid of it. I just want to grow. I want to grow in the Lord. And I was thinking about this. So we're everybody, we're all so upset. We're all so upset because for 250 years, we've been handed down in our country these, these rights and these promises about what we can live in, this bill of rights and this constitution and is being eroded right now and everybody is furious about it. But we better wake up because we've got 6,000 years of faith that has been dropped off at the doorstep of the American church that we are ignoring and that nobody seems to care about the fact that it's being lost, that it's being left behind. I was listening to a big apostolic church today, the biggest UPC church, I think, in the, in the, in the country. And I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be ultra critical. I really am not. But people who have a revelation of, of, the, of the glory of Christ, and the title of the message was, Be My Valentine, Love Jesus. I, I, is that, that what we've got in the church now? That's where we're at. People who know may host mega conferences. Pentecostal of Alexandria, you can go look it up. Is that what it's about? If we've got such a great revelation of Jesus Christ, if that faith has been dropped off on our doorstep, we better have something more than be my Valentine. Sorry, we do. We need something more than that. I can't work on cake. I've got to get some meat in my body. I've got to get some substance there to grow off of. I want to tell you that we've been given, we've, we've been handed this precious promise. And I am so thankful for, the, for all the labor. How many are thankful for all the labor of the ministries in this church? The choir and the, and the teaching and all. It all works together, don't we agree? It all works together. It edifies the Lord. We've been given this. Let's not squander it. It's not about being more right than other people. It's not about going out and telling other people they're wrong. It's about using the gift that God has given us to promote Him and to give Him the glory. Lord, I pray right now, God, that You would be exalted, Jesus. I pray that You would work in Your people and provoke us to good works. Cause us to respond. Lord, show us where we need to grow. Show us the areas of our life, Lord, where we need to grow in. And Jesus, we're going to give you the honor and the glory. Amen.